as we continue through this letter and, and attempt to maintain the, the logic of Paul's argument and the flow of his speech, I want to begin reading again at verse 17. This time I'll read all the way through verse 25. All of this constitutes sort of a, a, a subsection of a, of a section, but it all goes together. So beginning in verse 17, we read, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to us, or but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is God's Word, and now let's pray, as always, that He would help us, that He would teach us, and that He would wake us up. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, as we turn our attention to it, would you, would you open our eyes to see the marvel of what you have done for us? Oh Lord, we can see what others cannot see. And that's not because we're smarter or wiser. It's not because we tried harder or we tried better. Lord, it is because you came to us. Lord, if that doesn't delight us, if that doesn't thrill us and wake us up and stir us up to joy, there's nothing that will. Well, the greatest news that's ever been told, we have heard it and you have made it power unto us. Thank you, Lord. Now help us to see it again. Help us to see what is very often our tendency as men. And Lord, may we exult and adore you once again. We ask all this for the glory and for the sake of Christ and in His name. Amen. To introduce this this section, I want to present to you a little, I don't know what you would call this, sort of a theme that's from our confession of faith. And I don't know if you've ever noticed in reading through our confession, but there is a, a special emphasis and relationship that is assigned to some of the attributes of God that is not given to other attributes of God. In our evening study, we've been considering the attributes of God, and and we've seen that there are many of them. But when you read through at least our confession and other writings, you'll see that some of them get almost like a special treatment or a little uh, special attention that others don't get. And they're, they're put together in a relationship that if you, if you pay attention, you wonder, why do these keep coming up? And why are these always together? Let me, let me show you. You don't have to look, just listen. 
in, in paragraph 1 of chapter 1 from our confession of the Holy Scriptures. We read, The works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. We see there goodness, wisdom, power together. Not immutability, not aseity, goodness, wisdom, power. Chapter 3, paragraph 1, speaking of God's decree. In this decree appears His wisdom in disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing His decree. So there, again, we see wisdom and power, again, just like we saw in chapter 1, and then faithfulness is added. Chapter 4, paragraph 1, speaking of creation. It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world. Again, power, wisdom, goodness. Chapter 5, paragraph 1 of divine providence. God, the good creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things. And at the end of that paragraph, to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, Justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Again, power, wisdom in the first part. At the end, wisdom, power, goodness. There with justice and mercy added in. But again, wisdom, power, goodness. Later on in that same chapter, paragraph 4 of divine providence, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in His providence. Power, wisdom, goodness. Together again. Chapter 8, paragraph 8 of Christ the Mediator says that God will overcome our enemies by His almighty power and wisdom. Power and wisdom together again. Repeatedly, and you have a few others sprinkled in with, with alteration, but repeatedly we see God's wisdom, God's power, God's goodness placed together. You see that? Now, in all of those instances, and, and the one that actually says it explicitly, but in all of those instances, except for the, the last one, these perfections in God, His wisdom, His power, His goodness, are tied to the works of creation and providence, or what the theologians would call the works of God ad extra, out of Himself. And then even in the last one of Christ the Mediator, God's triumphing over our enemies, that too is a work of God coming out of Himself, ad extra. So repeatedly, in our own confession of faith, we have wisdom, power, goodness, these are, it seems to be, the emphasized attributes of God that are being put on display in the works of God coming out of Himself in creation and providence and redemption in Christ. Now, that, that should, if we're paying attention, we should then begin to wonder or, or try to meditate or think, come to some conclusion about why this is. What relationship should we notice between God's wisdom power, and goodness. Our confession puts them together. They go together over and over and over. What are, we, what are we supposed to see here? Listen to this explanation. There are three excellencies of the divine nature principally to be considered in all the external works of God. Number one, 
His goodness, which is the communicative property thereof. This is the external fountain and spring of all divine communications, the goodness of God. Number two, wisdom, which is the directive power or excellency of the divine nature. Hereby, that is by His wisdom, God guides, disposes, orders, and directs all things unto His own glory. Wisdom. Three, power, which is the effective excellency of the divine nature, effecting and accomplishing what wisdom doth design and order. In other words, what he's saying, that was John Owen, what he's saying is that the works of God, creation, providence, redemption through Christ, all of this displays in an astounding way, a, a principal way, His goodness, His wisdom, and His power. Wisdom has arranged and still arranges and orders and disposes and directs all things for the glory of God. Wisdom has ordered it. Power comes in and executes what wisdom has ordered. And then... The goodness of God is the communication of God Himself to the creature in what wisdom has arranged and power has executed. Or, to quote Owen oh, again, what infinite goodness will communicate, what, what God would give of Himself, infinite wisdom designs, and what infinite wisdom designs, infinite power effects. Goodness, wisdom, power. The communication of God Himself, the ordering and arrangement of all things for God's glory, and the power or the execution of all of that for God's glory. Goodness, wisdom, power. Now man, in his rebellion against God, cares nothing about God's goodness. Man, in his rebellion, wants nothing to do with God. God says, I would communicate myself. Mankind says, please don't. We don't want that. We don't need that. He wants nothing to do with God, although He is the constant recipient of the goodness of God every moment of every day. Now, having rejected God, having rejected the goodness of God, man must now concoct his own way by which he will bring glory to himself. His own wisdom. And in doing that, he has to set himself on this never-ending quest to try to effectually bring about what he has created of himself. That would be man's power. Man says, I don't want anything to do with God. God, we don't need you. I am wise. I can figure this out. I'm powerful. I can make this happen. From the moment man fell into sin... He hasn't been able to move himself one hair's breadth closer to his original condition before the fall. In all of his efforts, all of his efforts have been attempts to get back to what was lost and he can't get any closer. And we see this literally, physically in Scripture. Man is moving ever eastward away from God, always, never west, never back, always away from God. Man always digresses. And our only achievement is faster and more convenient ways to sink further and further into our rebellion and wickedness and despair. That's our condition. We have no innate goodness and we don't want anything from God. We don't want His goodness. 
Whatever we would call wisdom is foolish. Whatever we would call power is shown to be utterly impotent by every one of us. And it's against that backdrop that Paul says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, God with us, God giving Himself to us, communicating Himself to us, the goodness of God incarnate, and wisdom and power. In other words, in this one figure, all of this goodness, wisdom, and power of God has been presented back to us or offered to us. While the people of earth scurry about like a global colony of ants and yet far less successful than ants, but we scurry about trying to build our own empire and our own kingdom, trying to stand up on our hind legs or climb on top of each other to make ourselves higher, to make ourselves look more glorious. Well, we're, we're scurrying trying to accomplish that. God looks down from heaven. He sees the puny scaffolding and arrangements that we've tried to put together and He says, Stop! Put your tools down. I'll give myself. I'll communicate myself to you. I'll be your wisdom. I'll be your power. And that's what He's done in Jesus Christ. He communicates Himself and His goodness to us in Jesus Christ. He displays His infinite wisdom to us in Jesus Christ. He works effectual power in us by Jesus Christ. Now... Coming back to the context of 1 Corinthians, the, the, the Corinthians were, were building their scaffolding around this edifice they're trying to build, and that scaffolding was on the backs of their favorite preachers. Well, you know who I think the best preacher is? Well, you know, but actually, I think that this one's the best preacher. Well, no, no, I think this one's the best preacher. And they're building, they're trying to construct something to make themselves look better than their, their fellow man. And Paul comes in with the wrecking ball, the deconstruction project, to explain to them preachers serve one purpose, and that is to preach the cross of Christ. And the, the, this preaching and this method is actually a judgment upon man's wisdom. You're using it to exalt your wisdom. Preaching is the exact opposite. It's supposed to humiliate you. It's supposed to bring you down to show you who you are before God. And God has done this. He's humiliated and, and thwarted man's wisdom. All of man's most superior efforts have been thwarted. God has shown the world's wisdom to be foolishness. He has chosen to save those who believe through the preaching of the crucified Messiah. He's made it all, He's brought it all to nothing. That's what's happening here. Now, I made the point last Lord's Day because we need to be clear on this that man's wisdom, which is actually foolishness, is not to be confused with ignorance. When we see uh, foolishness, man's wisdom, and foolishness, they're parallel. When we see that, we are not to think of just somebody who just doesn't know information. When we see that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, we're, we're not to think, well, that is true because a two-year-old can't read. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a, an active militance against God. Man's wisdom, which is foolishness, actively, actively militates against God. It's a pursuit. 
It's a labor. It's a lifestyle or a worldview. It is a personal endeavor that people set themselves on. Man, man wants to go away from God and he's working in that direction. He's opposed to God. And the cross exposes how foolish that is. That's Paul's argument here. Now, we're, we're walking through this and we're going to pick up now in verse 22. Paul now descends into the particulars of everything that he said. He's not saying anything new, but he's going to take, take all that he said and apply it specifically to his audience. And he's going to prove once again that Christ is the only remedy for man's fallen condition. I'll read verses 22 to 25 again. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So Paul here, first he exposes the specific nature of his audience, just in case they had heard everything he said and they thought, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not getting what you're saying. What are you, what are you trying to say? How does, what does this look like in our world? Well, he's going to expose the nature of his audience. Then he's going to explain his own ministry in contrast to their desires. And then Paul exhibits the methodology of God as perfectly achieving what God has already determined He'll do. Judge some and save others. So the first thing that we see is Paul's audience exposed. Again, Paul takes what he's been saying in a general sense and he's now going to show how it applies specifically to his audience that being a church, the Corinthians, made up of Jews and Gentiles. But Gentiles in this region would have been known particularly as Greeks, Greek people. And he says essentially that though Jews and Greeks may go about it a different way, they, they've really just chosen their own distinctive way to do the same thing, and that is reject what God has said. That's what he's going to say here. So first, notice what he says. For... Jews demand signs. Now that word for, same word he's been using at the beginning of each statement. It's, it's, he's drawing a logical argument. He's, he's building his case. And we could translate that by, as if he had said, well, what I mean is, or here, let me, let me explain it to you a little further. For Jews, the physical offspring of Abraham, demand signs. Now, in our thinking, I, I think the word demand is too strong. The word, when we hear demand, we think of fist pounding, give it, give it, give it. Well, the, the, the word is elsewhere just translated ask. But it's not ask as in, I'm asking you a question, hoping to receive an answer. The, the idea here is I'm asking you or, or requesting something with the implication that if, if you don't give it, then I can't proceed to the next step. Think of a hostage situation. We've got a list of demands. What is he saying? He might not be pounding his fence saying, I demand, I demand. He might just saying, you give me this and I'll let the hostages go. I need to see this. I need to have this. And once I have this, we will proceed. That's the flavor of this word. Requesting one thing in order to proceed to another. If you say to your spouse, will you give me the keys? Or can I have the keys? Well, the implication is 
so that once I get them, I can open the door. What do the Jews ask for? Well, the Jews ask for, the Jews demand signs. And this is the word used repeatedly throughout Scripture for supernatural signs. Um, most often the idea behind uh, these signs is that they, they are not only miraculous, but they also carry some sort of theological meaning behind them. That's the way John uses it most often in his gospel. This is, this, you see something, a miraculous wonder or a sign, it actually means something even further. It's revealing something. So what he's saying is that those of the Jewish persuasion, being a people who had a history that was hemmed in by supernatural works of God, they, they knew of signs from God, well, those people, they're still standing around waiting or asking for another such sign or demanding a sign. The Jews want to see something miraculous to prove the truth of the gospel or they won't believe it. Jews demand signs. We see this explicitly played out in the gospels. Listen, you don't have to turn there, but sort of the, the, the flow of the narrative beginning in Matthew 11 and going through Matthew 12. In Matthew, John's, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus. They say, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? What does Jesus say? Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, he lists many signs that were a fulfillment of, of a specific prophecy. Go and tell John, you see the signs, that should seal the deal. But then later on when he's speaking of the unbelieving, in Matthew eleven sixteen and 17, he says, To what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. In other words, you, you people are never happy, never satisfied. John the Baptist comes. He's too strange. I come. I'm too normal. You, you, you're, you're never satisfied with what has, has been presented. Nothing will pacify you people. That's the picture. Okay, then we move into chapter 12, which is the, the sort of the... the uh, Locus classicus, I guess, of, of manifesting or showing this truth. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now what's the difference between them and John's disciples? John's disciples were questioning. They were questioning, but what, what's the, the, the angle of their question? It's like a demand. We demand a sign. We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What he's saying is the sign of all signs will be the resurrection of the crucified Messiah. That's what you'll get. They demanded a sign. And he says, that's wicked. That's adulterous. In John chapter 6, our Lord has just fed the 5,000. The very next day, those same people that just received this miraculous food, they've followed Him again. Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. God commands you to believe. What do they say? They said to Him, 
then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? In other words, we demand a sign. If we're going to reciprocate with faith, we're going to need you to give us a sign. Prove yourself. And then ironically, you know, they, they make a suggestion. Our, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, we'd like a little more bread maybe. That'd be a good idea. They're, they're suggesting. How about some more bread? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. His answer again, He said, this is what God commands. God commands, believe in the one that He sent. Standing right here. Well, what sign do you do? God has already given the sign. What more has to be done? You believe. This is the bread. And they didn't say, we don't get the impression anyway that they're saying, well, well, we just don't understand. Could you explain a little more about... No, they ate the bread the day before. They would not accept what God had provided. They refused. The irony in, in these passages is that the Christ is literally standing in front of them. He has performed signs that none of them deny. They all accepted the signs. They all agreed, yeah, He's performing signs. They assigned the power to Satan, but they never denied that He performed the signs. They all agreed... He's doing things. He's doing signs. They all agreed. No man speaks like this man. They they saw it, and yet they denied or they they refused to believe. Well, we come down to Paul's day as he's writing to Corinth. Christ has been crucified. He has been raised from the dead. He's been seen by over 500 eyewitnesses in His resurrected body. And the Jews still said, we're going to need to see some proof if we're going to to believe this story. What evidence do you have? Well, a man came back from the dead, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what sign? We're going to need need to see a sign. Give us a sign and we'll believe. The Jews demand a sign. That was the Jewish condition. Then he says, Greeks seek wisdom. We've already talked about this in a lot of detail. This, when we think of wisdom, we typically think of just intellect. But for them, it was more of a worldview. Wisdom was not so much the attainment of wisdom itself, but a person was considered wise or a person was said to have attained wisdom if they had found the, the secret way to, to move themselves upward, to advance themselves or exalt themselves. And it was displayed with a lot of rhetorical flair, even a kind of preaching. As we saw in verse uh, 17, uh, or or verse, uh, yeah, verse 17, they had a word of wisdom. They had their their proclamation, their preaching. They had their their doctrine. Some people would translate this, the doctrine of wisdom, the, 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 the philosophy of using man's wisdom to advance. They had all of that. They had their preaching and preachers. But their message was man centered. The, the, one of the clearest examples of the Greeks seeking this type of wisdom is Acts 17. Paul's preaching, and it says, he's in Athens, it says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke adds his commentary. Now, all the Athenians, we might get to the end of that last sentence and say, Wow! Can you imagine being a preacher and a, a, a whole group of lost people like, please come and preach. We want to hear what you have to say. But Luke slows us down. He says, now, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, they would spend their time in nothing except learning something new. All they wanted to hear was the new teaching. This is how they spent their time. Probably assuming someday we'll hear that teaching that will... Move us. It will be the wisdom. We will be, finally be found. In verse 32 of Acts 17, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, and we kind of get hopeful again, we will hear you again about this. We'll listen to your story again. And maybe there was hope to be found there. But some of them determined that that message was silly. They mocked him. Others determined it was worthy of another hearing. That was the Greek mindset. The Jews, they demand signs. The Greeks, they seek wisdom. In both of these instances, we see that those involved, whether Jews or Greeks, are actually committing the same error, the same sin. What was the sin? They had all set themselves up as the judges of God's revelation. We will, you present it to us and we'll, we'll sit on a panel and we'll listen and we'll raise our cards. Well, we, that's a seven, well, that's a three, that's a silly, you know. We'll, we'll decide if it's, if it's worth listening to. Christ stood before the Jews and did many mighty works and even rose from the dead. And they decided, well, that's just not enough. We, we're going to need more. Again, they, they were rejecting what they knew was true. Why? Well, because if they believed in this one, it would require them to submit to a crucified Messiah. And that's not what the Jews wanted. It would, it would require them to humbly obey and follow the one who was crucified by the Romans. Paul was publicly placarded as crucified and raised to Greek-speaking people, the Greek world. Some of them found it worthy to be heard again. But remember, as we've seen, the crucified God-man was just too much for them to handle. They, they couldn't bear it. So both Jews and Greeks, according to Paul's assessment, were guilty of actively rejecting or standing as judges over what God had given. God gave His Christ, Christ preached, Christ performed miracles, Christ was crucified, raised from the dead. The Jews said, nah, we're going to need more. Christ is publicly preached as crucified amongst the Greeks. Nah, I, that just sounds silly to us. It wasn't that they didn't know. It was that they refused to believe what God had said. The very same sin that began in the Garden of Eden. They refused to believe what God had said. It's perpetuated to this day. They actively refused because they said, we're the judges we have the authority, we have the right to determine whether this is true or false, whether it's worthy of our faith or not. The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Now as an encouragement, I want to point out something. Asking and seeking are not always sinful. 
These very same words that are translated ask or demand and seek are translated in Luke 11, ask, ask and seek, in, when Christ is talking about prayer. Luke 11, 9 and 10, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, or to the one who knocks, it will be opened. In other words, now, now if we just read this, we put these two things side by side, we'd say, what? This doesn't make any sense. Over here you've got asking and seeking. That's a wicked and adulterous generation. Over here you've got asking and seeking, and Christ says, if you ask, it's given. If you seek, it's, you'll find it. What's the difference? Remember how he goes on to illustrate in Luke 11 the asking, like a, like a child going to their father. Will you give me a piece of bread? Like a child going to their father. Will you give me a fish? Humbly coming to receive with an outstretched hand. Will you give me? Not demanding, not making it a condition, but imploring, I need, I need. That's the person who receives and finds and has the door open. In other words, God does desire that we come asking and seeking, but we cannot come as judges. We don't come to determine whether what He gives is right or wrong. We cannot come asking and seeking so that we can use our own intellect to determine whether or not what God has provided is actually right. But this is what they had done because this is what all men do by nature. Jews or, or Greeks or speaking broadly of, of Gentiles, all nations, apart from Christ, we think we're the judge. And that's what Paul's showing. The word of the cross is folly to the perishing. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. The world cannot know God through its own wisdom. Jews try, they fail. Greeks try and they fail. That's the logic of his argument. He's showing them, you people, you know this is how your, your background, your cultures are. The saints in Corinth, whether Jewish or Greek converts, would have been able to see that what Paul was telling was the truth. They would have been able to say, yeah, that is how we, we were, if they were believers. That, that is what we come from. You're right about the Jews, Paul. You know how the Jews are. Paul, you're right about the Greeks. We know. This is mankind, always, always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Why? Because truth is something that is given. It's handed. It's given from God. It's not something that we come and demand and judge. So that was their, their, the, the sin of the culture. That was how he exposed his audience. Now at the beginning of verse 23, Paul explains his ministry, and he's sort of restating what he's already said that his own ministry is opposed to all of that. Verse 23 begins with the word, but, which is a word of contrast. So he's saying, Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. Now, in contrast to all of that, we preach Christ crucified. We, we do the opposite. This, this To go back and... and distort the parable, this would be like the Jews ask for a fish and I give them a scorpion. I give them the complete opposite of what they're seeking. I do something different. We preach Christ crucified. 
We, again, he's referring to the duly commissioned emissaries of the king, the, the apostles, the, the New Testament preachers, or his apostolic band, those who had been sent out to preach. We preach, we herald, we proclaim, we stand and announce Christ crucified. We do not stand and offer something to be judged by the minds of men. We're not saying, I would like to put forth a suggestion that maybe, perhaps, Christ was crucified. No. We declare it. This, this is the truth. We preach, stand, and declare or herald the truth. And what is the truth? Christ crucified. The promised Messiah of God, the Savior of the world, was hanged on a Roman crucifix until dead. We preach Christ crucified. The Son of God died in humiliation and shame before the eyes of men. But He triumphed over all the powers of sin and hell in that death. He bore the wrath of God vicariously as our substitute and our representative. In that act, He made atonement for sins. He satisfied the justice of God. He ransacked the house of Satan. He plundered His goods. He, he triumphed. That's Christ crucified. And in this, and this alone, this work of Christ crucified, this work by this man, all by itself, no additions, no subtractions, no help, no contributions from us, in that alone is the, the way to eternal life. Period. You receive it like bread from heaven, from the mouth of God, and you will be saved. You stick your hand out and say, I'll take it. You will be saved. Believe and you'll be saved. But if you come and you say, well, I'm just not sure about that. You reject it. You will perish in hell forever. It's that simple. That's what we, we preach. He says, we preach Christ crucified. He's simply, again, restating what he had begun with in verse 17. I'm sent on a mission. That mission is to preach the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners. You want signs? Well, we've got Christ crucified. You want wisdom? Well, we got Christ crucified. You want to see the miraculous? Well, look at God saving sinners by crushing His Son. You want to, you want to hear something that will really boggle your mind, that will really astonish you, that will set you back? God took on flesh, became a man was crucified. Three days later, He came back from the dead. Now He's ruling from His throne in heaven. Someday He's going to come back from heaven to take us to be with Him and then He will literally bring heaven down to earth and we'll live with Him forever. That's, that's the message. That's what we've got. In other words, that's what He's saying. Paul says, people want a lot of different things. We've only got one product. Now that sounds limiting to the world. Only one product. Well, the thing is, it's the only one that'll work. It's the only one with an eternal uh, warranty. It's the only one that there's, there is no exchange policy because it always works. It always does exactly what it's designed to do. And people say, well, I don't want that. And if you don't want that, we've got nothing else. I have nothing else to offer you. Well, tell me that, that all of my, my, my physical ailments will go away. I, all I have is Christ crucified. Well, tell me that I'll get, get out of debt and I'll be rich. All I've got is Christ crucified. 
Well, tell me I'll live a long life. I can't. All I've got is Christ crucified. You have to take that. And then the cards will fall where they lay. That's how Paul explains his ministry. They want all of these things. We just preach Christ crucified, and the Corinthians would have been able to bear witness. That is correct. He'll do this in chapter 2. They would, be, they would be able to say, yeah, that's what he did. And here we are. We're converted. We're believing. They could testify to it. And in this we see, thirdly, God's method exhibited. At the end of verse 23 and going all the way through verse 25, Paul reaffirms all that he said, again showing the specific application to his hearers. Remember that God had said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul had said, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And so Paul says, We preach the gospel. We preach the word of the cross. And guess what happens? It divides. Some are confounded by it. Some are saved by it. Now he's going to apply that specifically. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews. A stumbling block to Jews. It's a message they trip over. So contrary to their expectations that it, it confuses them. It doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't mesh with what they aspired after. Now in Isaiah 28, 16, we read this, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Speaking of Christ, Christ was meant to be the precious cornerstone of their faith, treasured upon which they built everything. But instead, as David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. In other words, for the Jews, their ceremonies and their obedience had become so entwined with their righteousness before God that when God actually provided a perfect righteousness from heaven, they would not submit to God's righteousness. That's what he says in Romans 10. God gave a stone, said build on this, and they just tripped over it. Him. The idea that they were still so sinful and so estranged from God that the Son of God had to die and make a sacrifice for them, to them, that was something they would not accept. We're the offspring of Abraham. We've got the ceremonies. We've got the sacrifices. We've got the temple. We've got all of these things. And you're telling us that we have to come and now bow down to the carpenter who was crucified by the Romans, that that is the promised king? They said, we can't do it. We won't do it. Christ himself was the stumbling block in his person and in his work. They couldn't, they couldn't make sense of it. Our Messiah, a Jewish carpenter? No. Our Messiah riding into Jerusalem on, the, on, the, on a donkey? No. Well, your scriptures actually say, no, no, we won't, we won't accept that. They rejected it. His work, he's hanging on a Roman cross. The, the oppression of the Romans, the, the, the oppressive people that, that were ruling over the Jews, their, their, their most hated opponents crucified this man and you're telling me that of the three men on that hill that that one in the middle that died just like the other ones quicker than the other ones that that one is the one we have to follow right no we, we can't we can't go there we've been promised a kingdom we've been promised glory we've been promised triumph he was a stumbling block to the jews 
And that very same message was folly to the Gentiles, as we've seen. A deity incarnate, a crucified God-man, exaltation through humiliation and suffering, resurrection from the dead, that's just silly. You're just making stuff up. You might as well tell me a man spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish as to tell me somebody came back from the dead. To them, it's, it's silly. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's foolish. And therefore, what God had promised was fulfilled. He said He would do something that only He could do that would render human wisdom empty and vain, but by which He would also save sinners. And in Christ, He did it. He accomplished it. Yes. And men reject it. No, I won't have that. When men reject the gospel as foolish or demand more proof, they are evidence of the truthfulness of God's word. They are living out what God said would happen. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. But then verse 24, there's always this other group. It's amazing that up until this point, the world had been divided in the Jewish mind, the Jews and everybody else. Now Paul says, no, there's a new dividing line. It's people of all nations who believe, people of all nations who don't believe. He says that same message produces a different outcome to a different group of people. But to those who are called, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, those of every nation, who come under the effectual call of God through the preaching of the gospel. Christ. The implication is the same thing. Christ crucified. We preach the same message and that same message through that same method. Christ. Him crucified. Nothing has changed except now we have been introduced to the effectual working of God upon the heart of a sinner. In this room, there are people who will hear the same message in the same method, sit side by side. One will enter heaven, one will go to hell. That's going to happen. What's the difference? What, what is the dividing line? Ultimately, it is the effectual call of God coming through the, the general call of the gospel. Now, you can't hear the general call, you, that is me, saying to you, repent and believe. You can't hear that and say, well, I don't know if I'm being effectually called. No, you're hearing the call. Repent and believe, that's the call. And if you go to hell, that's because you heard it and you said, no, I don't think I'll repent and believe today. I won't give up my life today. I've got a, a few other things that I want to get ironed out. I've got a few other plans that I want to get settled and, and straightforward first. I've got some other things I want to do. And then maybe in my 30s or 40s or 50s, maybe then I'll really get serious and lay, lay it all out for Christ. And God says, you've just rejected my son. You've chosen everything the world offers rather than my son to hell with you. That's the dividing line. God effectually calls through the general call. You reject the general call, you reject the effectual call. But to those who are called, he says, Christ, those who come under the sovereign call, this crucified Christ is shown to be the power of God. The power of God. Now, I'll, I'll just confess, there's more here than we have time to consider. 
if we had time to consider, I don't have the intellect and competence to even explain what this means. I don't have it. I wish I did. Maybe next Lord's Day we can dig into it further. Christ, the power of God. In brief, remember that power is the effectual working of God, executing what wisdom had designed in order to communicate the goodness of God. All of God's works show His power. God's power is effectual power. That is real, actual change. Real transformation. Real accomplishment. Now, that's what people want. That's what men want. But they don't have it. They can't produce it. They want change, but they cannot affect it. The power of God unto a true effectual transformation is found only in Jesus Christ. He is the power of God to those who believe. And He is presented in the gospel. The, the preaching of the gospel, and this is, not, uh, this is not contrary to what Paul says, uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Well, right here he says Christ is the power of God because the gospel puts forth Christ. It says, here He is, take Him. There's the power. Christ, the power of God. He's also the wisdom of God. And this is what the Greeks wanted. They wanted to, to find a way of, of self-advancement or self-exaltation. This is what all men seek after. In other words, they, all men cry out, get us out of this condition. What is the way out? Everybody does it. It can only be found in Christ. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. All the counsels of God from eternity were laid in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, the men of the world, I'm going to try to put these together, the men of the world seek wisdom because they think that if they can find wisdom, that will be the means to power. That that will bring forth the, the effectual transformation. If they can find the true way, then they can find true transformation that will bring them out of the, the state and condition in which we all find ourselves. It will bring us to a, a new state of existence. That's the, the, the process in which they seek. We want wisdom so that having found wisdom, something will change. We'll, we, will, we will move ourselves. We'll see power. Paul says, Christ is both. He is the transforming power of God. He is the wisdom of God. You get Jesus Christ, you get everything. It's all summed up in one person. And this is why I believe back in verse 18, I pointed this out, that Paul moved from folly to power instead of folly to wisdom. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. We would have expected folly wisdom, but he goes folly power. Because power is the ultimate end. The change is what men know that they need. Mankind shows in everything that he does that he's desperate. People are in utter despair. Men know life is coming to an end. They see their hair turning gray. They see their skin getting wrinkles. They notice their joints getting stiff. I don't see as good as I used to. I don't hear as good as I used to. The whole race knows something's got to change or we all perish. Give us the thing that will get us out of this fallen condition. And the pursuit of wisdom is the pursuit of that 
whatever that thing is. They, they never find it. Paul skips straight to the end. The word of the cross is folly to the perishing, but power to those who are being saved. Here's what you're after, in other words. Here's what you need. And he's not a means to an end. He is the end. He is the power. Through union with Christ, we become united to Him who made the world and upholds the universe by the word of His power. We get Him. We're brought into union with Him. And that's what Paul's saying. He says, we're, you guys are searching after wisdom. You're trying to find step one to get to step two. I'm, I've, I'm bringing you the fullness. I'm preaching the fullness of it. The one message. The one Savior that can alone satisfy all of the ails of the human race is Jesus Christ. We preach Christ. And those who are being saved, verse 18 are those who believe, verse 21, are those who are called, ultimately we trace it back to the sovereign power of God, but all those who are in that category from every nation under heaven, whether Jews or Greeks, Jews or Gentiles, every nation, they will all find this to be true if they will simply look to Jesus Christ. He's everything. He is the power. He is the wisdom. Verse 25. For... And this is a different word. Now all of a sudden, this is kind of how we know that he's bringing this part of the argument to a climax. This word could be translated because, or, or let, me, let me sum it all up in this statement. For, here's why it happens this way. The wisdom of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is the foolishness of God? Well, he's, he's, he's using a rhetorical device. If we could imagine something that would be the, the, the basis of all of God's thoughts, uh, arrangements, and orderings, if, if there were a scale, and we could come all the way down to the very bottom one, that would be the so-called foolishness of God. Weakness of God, again, Speaking rhetorically, if we could imagine that there were some, some beginning level power in God, the, the, the simplest thing that He's ever performed, that would be the weakness of God. Now, now, we know that there is no foolishness in God. There is no weakness in God, and that's the point. If there were a scale and we came all the way to the bottom, to the most simple thought of God, and the, the weakest act of His power, even there we would find all the cumulative wisdom and power of men to be completely and utterly humiliated at the bottom. Why? Because He's holy in His power. He's holy in His wisdom. It's, it's, it's on a different level. The very bottom of it starts on a different plane. We can't get there. What's He saying in this verse? He's saying, this is God. Why does it happen this way, Paul? This is, this is how God does. This is how God works. This is how He operates. He works to communicate Himself through a scheme of infinite wisdom effected by infinite power so that the praise ultimately returns up to His own glorious grace. We have to say, God alone has done it. We might say, oh, that was a, a very basic plan of God to make water wet. That's obvious. 
And yet we can't explain it. We can't, we can't reproduce it. We might say, well, that was, that was a, a pretty simple act of God to make water flow downhill through gravity. And yet we've been trying to dam it up for centuries and harness its power to, to power cities. Little things like that. We don't, we don't even realize that what we take for, for granted as, as the basic laws of nature, that is what has baffled the human mind. From the beginning, we, we can't even begin to fathom how this works. We just have to say, well, it's just a, a law of nature. It just is. That's, that's our, our best philosophy. It just is. You throw a ball up, it comes down. Why? Well, it just is. There's gravity. Yeah, but why? Well, it's a law of nature. It just is. This is how God works. The very will act of His Word is sustaining galaxies and solar systems full of billions and billions of stars that dwarf our own sun that we can't even see. Right. I, I'm, I'm convinced that when you, when you read these numbers, they're just making it up. Like, who, who is counting? Like, who's the guy that's like, oh, God, it's actually 634 billion? No, we're just, we're just guessing. That dwarf anything that we can comprehend. That's his power. He's holding it up. Now, if the natural wonders of God's creation have held the minds of puny men captive for these several thousand years, can you even imagine how our glorified minds are going to be swallowed up in the contemplation of the glories of the one of whom, through whom, and to whom all things exist? Like, we, we won't even care about leaves and water and animals anymore. That, that's, that's child's play in contemplating the glories of Christ and the glories of the gospel. And this is where Paul's trying to get them, the Corinthians. Do you think, let's enter into eternity, do you think that after a million years of contemplating the gospel... The goodness, the power, the wisdom of God in Christ, in the very presence of Jesus Christ Himself, with the nail scars in His hands and His feet and the, the hole in His side and the scars on His head, that any of us is going to look at anybody else and say, well, you know who I think the best preacher was? No, the thought of it is foolish. It's silly. Nobody's going to be talking about preaching and preachers anymore. That's what he's trying to get them to say, to see. There, there, is a, there is a power. There is a wisdom. There is a glory in the one that you all know. You believed upon him. You know him. And in this cross and in the way of salvation, that if you would fix your mind there, all of this other stuff, you will look back in six months, a year, two weeks, you'll look back and say, can you believe that we were... Talking about Paul versus Peter versus Apollos versus... Well, that was stupid, wasn't it? They all preached the same Christ, the same cross. He's trying to get them to where he was, to glory in the cross. When you glory in the cross, all of these other things, you see that they are all just means to get to him. And once you've found him, once you've found the power and the wisdom, you're grateful for the means, you're thankful. But they're nothing to glory in. There's nothing, they're nothing to boast in. So let's pray and let's be thankful that we have, have received such a wonderful Savior.
I'll read this morning from Matthew's Gospel and the Institution of the Lord's Supper, which says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So Christ took the bread before his disciples and he broke it. And he offered it to them. Take it, he said. Take it. Because it represents his body broken for sinners. Now earlier in Matthew's gospel, he refers to all of his people as little children. At that time, Jesus declared, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. For such was your gracious will. Children, when you see the bread broken, remember that the picture, this, the, the proclamation that's happening is that Jesus, who is God's Son, was given a body so that he could die in that body, that he could perish in that body. He could be killed, put to death. Why? Because you're a sinner. And very often, we always think that the sinner is somebody else. If you're a child, very often you think that, well, the sinner is my brother, or the sinner is my little sister, or the sinner is that, that other family down the street that don't do things like we do. Well, if that's your mindset, you can never be saved. You have to understand that when Jesus said, take, this is my body for you, that you have to say, well, then that means I'm the sinner. I'm the sinner. If you can't say, I'm the sinner, then you can't be saved. You must recognize that you are the sinner. and That God put forth His Son. What happened on the cross? God punished His Son as if He were a sinner. So that He doesn't have to punish you. Even though you are the sinner. And what does he say? He says, just believe. Just trust. And here, though he's not talking about little children specifically, I think it's safe to say that the message is easy to understand even for children. If you're here and you would say, well, I'm a child. Listen. Trust in Jesus Christ today. He doesn't say, well, wait till you're a little older and maybe I'll save you. No, he says today you can be saved if you'll trust him. That's the picture of the bread. Take it, he said. He broke it. Take it. He doesn't say wait till you're older and take it. He says take the bread and you will be saved. And you adults, I think you understand that too, right? We trust in him. We reach out and take Him. That's what's happening at the cross. God is punishing His Son so that we can be saved, so that we can be made sons and daughters. So as the elements are passed, children, adults alike, meditate on what was happening on the cross. And if you, if you say, well, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a Christian, then you just believe. Trust in Him and He will save you. But there is 
as always, a warning that comes with our coming to the table, even to those who are seasoned saints. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. We must remember that it is in Christ and Christ alone. Christ is the power and wisdom of God, not, not bread, not wine, not juice. Christ. We're looking to Christ. We're thanking Him that He's given us these things as a way to, to put a, a tangible look and taste and feel on what He's done. But really, it's in Him and Him alone that we're saved. So, give yourself to that meditation and then we'll come back to the table.